Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 218th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's already looking to see what's lurking behind Luris. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. How does this balmy May afternoon find you? We uh, decided to get out on the trails. We live just above a big forest, uh, quite luckily. And of course, all the parks are closed up here, um, rightfully so. But uh, us and about 600 other people decided that nobody else would be down there, so we may as well go take a look. So we quickly uh, redirected off to the side trails that are usually used for mountain biking, and those were uh, much more lonely. So we managed to get out for a nice walk this weekend. How about you? Um, yeah, we, I spent most of the nice weather ripping bushes out of my lawn, which is a backbreaking exercise, but with the closure of the gyms, which was pretty much my only course of exercise, it is necessary to do something like that. Um, and we, we too, we are on the water and there's a walkway down here, um, right along a river. And right when all of this started, we were going down pretty much daily but that was when it was still like 40 degrees out. And now that it's up into the 50s and almost 60s, it is so busy down there, we can't even go walking because it's just mobbed. Yeah, you remember that park I took you to in Toronto, Trinity Bellwoods, which is just like a massive social scene? I believe so. Yeah, so it any given Saturday or Sunday in the spring and summertime, early fall, it's going to be like a couple thousand people uh, in a space about maybe a third the size of Central Park. And... Shouldn't have been anybody in there. Should be no one down there. And we drove, decided to take a drive downtown and like check out a bunch of spots and see how social distancing was going in the core. And it's not going well. Uh, that park and pretty much every other one we, we passed this weekend was full of people. And some had masks and some didn't. And people are, I guess, getting mentally fatigued by the whole thing and are just convincing themselves everything's going to be fine. There's also a lot of like mixed signals coming from both press and government in terms of Everybody stay home, but hey, get ready to reopen as though like a slight flattening of our curve is is in any way a signal of safety. Yeah, we're dealing with the same thing, obviously, stateside. Anyone who pays it, unfortunate enough to pay anything attention to the news is seeing the same thing, right? Everyone's just sort of like, well, it's been two months. The weather's turning. That's good enough, right? That's fine. I saw this a great comparison on Twitter, and I don't, I don't remember the exact stat, but it was something like, they were expecting like 2,000 people, an average of 2,000 people to die every day for the next couple of months. Like that was the plan. For, so, so basically it's something about 2,000 people dying every day. And somebody chimed in and they were like, so in the Warhammer universe, there's this like emperor of the Marines. And he's basically kept alive by space magic because he's super old. And in order to keep him alive, they have to, he has to kill essentially a thousand people a day to keep him alive. And this is considered so abhorrent that simple that like three people know this. And by virtue of learning this thing, you will be, you will probably be killed. Like no one in the empire is allowed to know that that's what it takes to keep the empire emperor alive. Uh, and here it's like, yeah, 2000 people a day is fine. Like that's, that's acceptable. 
Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned you referenced the Warhammer lore because I've never played the game, never really looked into it at all, but somehow popped up in my uh, YouTube feed early on in the crisis, and I spent a few evenings <laughs> digesting a bunch of lore. I found it to be very grim. Uh, mm-hmm. Warhammer Universe is very just like whole lot of fuck you violence and like everybody's just massacring everyone and nothing but no heroes is kind of like their whole thing right yeah it's been it's been like i mean the 40k is 40 it's year forty thousand, and they've just been in endless war for like thirty thousand years haven't they yeah something like that so yeah i, I feel what you're saying that people need just need to get on top of that one point that the government was okay so with social distancing and the shutting down of the economy when they thought that that was going to be the way to protect their profit, the profits of their corporate overlords. But once it got like it was going to be a long time, they switched pretty quickly back to the whole, well, we're just going to let people die. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you are and, and don't trick yourself, a it's not even close to the flu. I think it's like the number one killer on the planet right now. Should be something like cancer and heart disease being the number one killers pretty much all the time. And COVID yeah. is by far the number one killer and probably still being underreported. And especially if you add in deaths that are not be- that are not COVID, but are COVID related in the sense that, you know, say you were fighting cancer and you would normally be out getting your treatments and somehow your treatments have been cut off because of lack of access due to you know, yep, yep, yep. you know, your treatments being waved off as non-essential or in, in Ontario, we've got a thing where like non-emergency surgeries just aren't happening. So, oh, if you, yeah. So, oh, if, yeah. so if you were like on a two year clock with cancer and you were trying to get an early tumor removed, you're just sitting there waiting yep. for this to all end. So because of all of that, you know, we're probably vastly underreporting the impact of COVID, not just well, the, the and, primary, but the secondary effects. And there's also the fact that it's you know, I'm I, I'm going to assume for the moment that you're correct, that it is the number one killer in the world right now. And that's with every country taking unbelievable steps to control it. Well, a lot of countries, some kind of a lot of the countries sure. that don't have the resources, don't have any choice but to just let people die and have been doing that from the start. And a lot of those countries have very low uh, reporting um, of deaths because there's just no tracking going on. They're, they're not testing. They're not tracking. So who knows? And you know, in the slums of Calcutta and whatever, you don't, <laughs> we're never going to know. Like the, the, the numbers on that are going to get lost in the shuffle completely. It could be massive amounts of death across the planet in the poorest quadrants of humanity. Very spooky stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm concerned because I'm still work from home and I don't see it coming to an end anytime soon, but, if they quote unquote reopen the country and make all the low income workers go back to work, it may prompt a lot of companies to be like, Oh, well, everyone's going back. So everyone back to the office. And it's like, uh, no, like <laughs> I can still do my job remotely and this can still kill me. And if they're expecting 2000 people to, to die a day, like I don't want to be a part of that. So I need to stay working from home for like a year uh, but it seems like it's going to be hard to make that sell if, you know, the targets and the hair salons and all that are open. Yeah, you, that, that becomes and, that becomes really tricky, right? We were, my, my significant other 
uh, is a music teacher here in Toronto who goes to the homes uh, of other families, and she goes to 25, 30 homes a week. So right now she's doing everything with uh, video lessons. And I was talking to her yesterday. I was like, okay, so if the premier of our province offered you, you know, ordered everybody to go back, say, two weeks from now or four weeks from now, and your semester, it's roughly the same as the, the normal school semester. Like, she offers classes um, up until the, the summer break starts normally. Are you just going to go back? And, like, what if half your parents are totally fine keeping on with video lessons because they're smart and the other half are like, no, we want you to come to the house because we think it's a better education. Um, you know, what are we going to do about that? Like how much uh, revenue loss will we accept to protect our family from my partner being a massive disease vector because she's in and out of a bunch of households and those households are all linked to schools and the schools are going to be massive spreading zones. Or, you know, if those family, even if those kids aren't back in school because they leave schools out for the rest of the semester, those families still start going out to parks and malls and sidewalks and whatever, and nobody's wearing enough masks because, A, there isn't enough of them, and, B, people aren't properly educated as to why the mask is so important. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy. I, yeah, I don't know what to make of all this at the moment. but And, and, the, sca- and the scariest part of new, piece of new research that I dropped into the impromptu Discord uh, COVID channel that we have going uh, for the pro traders Um is there was a report today, scientifically backed, that COVID mutated at least once already, and that the more virulent strain is significantly easier to catch, that it took over as early as late February in a lot of places, that it was seen in Italy and parts of Europe, that it made it to the east coast of the U.S. and uh, in Oregon, which was one of the earliest states hit, coming from the east coast of Asia, Um, they got the first uh, version of the virus, but then quickly got taken over by the second. And what that means is that a lot of the organizations that are working on treatments and or uh, vaccines are probably using the wrong data because the the most dominant strain of the virus has already mutated into something else that they're going to need to adjust their game plan for. And a lot of the uh, planning around development of a vaccine was a crossed fingers approach that it wasn't going to be like uh, the flu, like the influenza virus, and mutate on our semi-regular basis, requiring new vaccines all the time and lowering the expected efficacy. Uh, Because one of the things I think we talked about maybe a month ago on CAST was that in the U.S., even with the flu vaccine over the last, say, 10, 15 years, the efficacy has ranged from anywhere from like 10% to I think 55% or something like that. But it's never been amazing. Like just getting a flu vaccine doesn't mean that you're 98% protected or whatever. It's often just gives you a 50-50 and in some years has only given you 10% more protection. Mm-hmm. If we're in this. It's not. And, Go ahead. And with this mutated form of the virus that is so virulent and, and really like anybody who's told you it's just the flu you got to put that to rest. Like it's 10 times worse than the flu at least, especially once you start considering secondary impacts and given that it's so much more virulent and uh, that it's harder to contain and has such a more dramatic impact on the population. And now there was another report out of New York that very small percentage of children that tested positive for COVID developed a mysterious set of symptoms that have nothing to do with the symptoms other people have had. Um, and there's another thing that developed over the last week called COVID toes, 
which is people developing rashes on their toes, but also in other parts of their body, on their their trunk of their body and uh, on their backs and stuff, that is often uh, a representation of being infected. And I had just been like, I was like two or three days out of posting that in our Discord, and then my little brother calls me and goes, yeah, I got COVID toes. Huh. And I, it turns out he was on a business trip in New York in early March, towards the, you know, before the borders started closing. And he's been feeling generally fine, but he noticed his feet, his feet were kind of looking messed up. And he went out and talked to like, he was on track to be a doctor at one point. So he knows a lot of doctors and he talked to like five or six of his friends that are medical professionals. And I think four out of the six had never even heard of COVID toes when he was talking to them. And one of the, one of them uh, was like, said yeah it could be that but you know it could be other things who who knows dermatology is weird but the reality is that like there's probably tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people out there that are going to look down at their toes when they hear about this and be like oh yeah that's me <laughs> yeah uh-huh it's there there's so much to this and we could spend probably another 45 minutes discussing you know, all of this and how it will impact magic. But I, like, we, we can't, we can't go too far down this rabbit hole, but, but maybe next week or, or, you know, in the near future, we can kind of get deeper into it. I, I do have one further point as a PSA, since I think it's important. If the thing is mutating and you think that you might've already been exposed or you've been operating on the assumption that, you know what, it's going to be safe to resume our normal lives because you know what, we probably got it already. Keep in mind, you might've only got the first strain. And if there's a second strain or a third or a fourth develops, if it continues to fork, then there's every likelihood that you are not immune to the new forks because the ones that become dominant become dominant because they're more effective. So just because you were safe the first time doesn't mean you'll be safe the second time and means that flattening the curve is not going to be enough. If, if, if the curve dropped off a cliff, but... Some people were still infected with the very virulent strain, and then you put everybody back out in public. It's not going to take too long before you're going to be right back into the early middle stage of the March part of the curve. Mm-hmm. So please, people, yeah. just stay at home. If you got to go out, please put on a mask. There was a there was a study that was like sixty sixty percent efficiency vis-a-vis even just a cloth mask so just like wrapping a cloth bandana around your face could have a tremendous if everybody was doing that those are pretty crappy but they're still better than just breathing in droplets in the air so it will really help flatten the curve if you just take that one extra step like i've just taken to like anytime i leave the house i wear at least a bandana and if i'm going anywhere near people i've got my n95 mask on now not everybody's going to have access to a mask but most people will have at least access to something they can tie around their head. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Never. I, I, you can't go anywhere without covering your face. Um, you know, when we bring packages, we receive packages, we set them aside, yep. you know, we let them sit for a while. We wash our hands after we touch everything, you know, all that, all that rigmarole. So yeah, I encourage all of our listeners to do, Take the steps that feel excessive and like they're getting sick of them, um, but you know, saves you and everyone you know. But all right, I want to get back on track here. Um, 
Our show is produced by mtgpriced.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgpriced.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. What is on the agenda this week, my friend? Well, this week we have a show in about six parts. Segment one, our MTGO Metagame Week in Review. We'll poke in and look at some of the events that we've seen here in Modern, Pioneer, maybe even touch on some Legacy and Vintage. Segment two, our top paper movers, cards that have moved the most in price this week in paper. Segment three, our top MTGO movers, cards that have been bouncing around on Moto. Segment four, our topic of the week, we thought we'd check in on an interesting intersection here companion the companion mechanic and vintage as it presents some unique challenges as well as some fun discussion points um then wrapping up segment five our mtgo cards to watch and segment six what you're all here for are paper cards to watch stuff that james and i think has a pretty good outlook so uh let's get started over here on the metagame we can review what has jumped out at you in this modern super qualifier? Anything? I mean, it's about companions in pretty much every format at this point. Uh, the top deck in the modern super qualifier on May 2nd was piloted by Mansack, M-A-N-S-A-K. <laughs> uh, that's a cute name, once you say it aloud. Uh, they're running Lurus, of course, <laughs> like everybody seems to be. Um, I, I think the big, the, the important point to highlight overall was that in the Legacy Challenge this week, 26 of 30 of the top 32 were Lurus, 20 of the top 32 in Pioneer were Lurus, 9 of the top 32 in Modern, uh, and their Super Qualifier was Lurus, and in Vintage it was 8 of 8 in the top 8. So, absolutely dominant to an even greater degree than Oko. And I suspect the maybe the worst domination stats that we've seen of any card in the modern era would be my guess. I don't have the numbers in front of me from Mirrodin era um, or Cobblade, but I am inclined to agree with you. And it's, you know, it's, it's different than how those decks were dominant. Cobblade was far and away the best deck at the time. And I think something like 40% of the room was Cobblader roughly. But that meant that, again, maybe one third to at most one half of the room was playing Cobblade. But that was only one third to one half. And that was a deck. And the other decks in the room were different decks. They were not kind of like Cobblade. They were their completely separate deck. Whereas with Luris and the Companions, it's like, okay, uh, you know, Pioneer, what'd you say? Like 20 of the top 32. And it was like, and it's like every Luris deck is going to be relatively similar. And there might be like two or three variations on on the Luris deck, but like there's so much more similar than like Cobblade and Valakit were. Well, I'd argue that the Luris decks are relatively well differentiated actually even across formats um, and within formats but they are similar in the it's true to say that they are similar in the sense that they all conform to Luris's requirement which is that your permanents can't cost two or more 
Um, but Lurus doesn't... Res- I think one of the things that makes Lurus a little extra broken is that it didn't restrict your spell co- casting cost. Whereas Karuga says that all of your uh, cards have to be three casting cost or more. Um, and I'm currently running a fun little like teamer Karuga thing in, uh, in the random play rooms on Arena. Um, and there's a big, big difference between the kind of deck restrictions imposed globally versus Lura saying your spells can be whatever, but your permanents have to be cheap. And the reason it's so dominant across so many formats is, as we said last week, as you go back further and further towards vintage, you're going to end up, your average casting cost is going to trend back towards zero or one anyway. And so anything that requires you to be playing that is not asking much of you on the deck building restriction side. So for instance, in this Jund build, we talked last week about how I was flagging Liliana of the Veil for a potential comeback post Allurus ban in modern. If it comes on the basis that she's a three casting cost permanent, so can't be run with Lurus, which is putting cards like uh, dark confidant, Tarmogoyf and Crocs, the Titan of death's hunger back to the forefront. I, I might've said that incorrectly. It's, Cobblade was dominant in that you had one deck that was exactly the same thing or, or very similar to being the same thing. And it was only like one third, it was like one third to, you know, 50% of the room. And if you weren't playing Cobblade, you were playing something completely different and the Cobblades were all very similar. Luris is way more of the room, but it's not just one strategy. It's a bunch of different strategies, but they all have this similar vein, and Lurus shows up in all of them. Um, and if it's not Lurus, it's probably another companion. So I think I said that incorrectly the first time around, but that's it's, that was the thought I was trying to have. Gotcha. So it's also like it's worth pointing out that something like Cobblade, you know, which is remembered as an extremely dominant deck from its era, was not dominant for that long. Whereas I think. First of all, some of the decks that are famed for being like taking down a tournament out of nowhere were dominant for that tournament, for that week, for that month, for that season, but probably even if it was a full season, only in that format. Like Carblade was never a thing in Legacy. It was a thing in one format at the time that was important at the time. But Lurus is taking over all formats. Pretty much every competitive format is is grappling with Lurus being a dominant card all at the same time. And so decks are playing out in a very similar way. Like, I play my Lurus, you play your Lurus, and then we do the Lurus dance back and forth in terms of who can cycle through permanence most efficiently to take down the game. And it's steering magic in a very narrow direction overall, and I don't think it's going to be allowed to last. It It seems like the kind of thing that narrows the experience to the point where people will quit. That Mm -hmm. plenty of vintage players have said, this is just brutal. And in standard, it's not Lurus that's the problem right now, it's Yorion. And apparently the the Yorion builds are so grueling to play the mirror against that people are just like, you know, I just don't want to play this deck anymore, even though it's the best deck because the mirrors are just unfathomably boring. (laughs) <laughs> like so many clicks so much like such ridiculous board states um just absolute insanity and yeah companions is looking real rough Luris is looking especially rough um and so i think when we're looking at things like how jund is currently doing you have to if you're before you start to invest in these cards you need to ask yourself a when do i think i'm going to get to play paper magic again um, because while tracking 
prevalent Jun cards for Magic Online is certainly a very worthwhile pursuit. Doing it in paper is much more dubious because I think that if I had to choose between when a Magic Fest will happen versus when Luris will catch a ban, I would put money on Luris catching a ban before a Magic Fest. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you on that front. It's, it's, it's to the point where I'm like starting to pull up the Pioneer, pay, like the re- recent results from Pioneer to you know look for cards to pick and think about buying them. Like, mm, this just feels like a trap. And I think, I think, you know, last week we talked about, I, t- I even talked about uh, Rally the Ancestors as a, as a possible pickup based on like results. And I mean, that's still true. Like, yes, that could end up becoming a thing in Pioneer. Maybe Rally the Ancestors does succeed because of that. But, um, you know, even over the last seven days, it's been like, uh, me, you know what? I'm going to limit the amount of cards i'm picking out of any of these formats because it feels like we're in a completely different it feels like the world of competitive magic is going to look very different in two or three months than it will than it does today yeah and and there's still this massive risk profile just hanging over all of our heads in terms of how repressed the economy may end up and what impact that will have on magic that i suppose we'll revisit maybe next week uh in detail uh one of the other things i noted was uh, it's interesting in the metagame is that modern is significantly more popular than pioneer on magic online right now and keep in mind that we've been pushing a narrative for mm, probably since pioneer was revealed so october um, for about six months that we suspected that pioneer was going to at best share a spotlight with, uh, share a spotlight with modern um, if not push it further down the podium but at least by popularity on Magic Online, we don't see that at all. Um, one of our members, uh, uh, shout out to BLKSPDS, uh, Blackspeeds. I don't know how he wants that pronounced, but uh, he tallied manually the trophies oh. for a few weeks of Magic Online. And it was something like 100 standard, 432 pioneer, 1,000 plus, like 1,007 modern events, uh, 389 legacy events, 96 vintage, and 236 popper. So you've got popper three times more popular than vintage, um, but modern 10 times more popular than vintage, three times more popular than roughly two and a half times more popular than both legacy and pioneer, and standard just like down at that vintage level because most of the standards happening on arena, um, where the overall play experience is just straight up better. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not terribly surprised that modern is that popular. It's a very cool format that's had a lot of. I mean, before companions had a lot of interesting things going on inside of it, um, and I think maybe part of it is that people know that they don't really play modern in paper anymore. Um, they probably. May, I don't know how much they were playing before all of this, and I don't know if they are planning on playing that much after all of this. And it's sort of like, well, if I'm if I'm on Moto, I might as well play Modern because that's kind of the only place I'm going to play it. And I, you know, I don't have the deck prices in front of me, so I don't know how like Modern Legacy deck, Modern Moto decks compare to like Legacy prices and Vintage prices on Moto. But I would imagine uh, Modern's a bit cheaper than those relatively. Um, or you might have already owned a lot of the cards and you didn't for Legacy. Uh, but that is at least very relevant what considering your moto action these days is uh, requires a real shift in priorities 
given that that format is so much more popular in Unmoto than you might anticipate it being based on your paper experience. There's also some, I mean, there's a lot of factors in play here before you make the assumption that the stats apply to paper, even if paper reopened and COVID was defeated miraculously tomorrow. Um, One of them is that the people that are still playing on Magic Online, other than the people that have rejoined since COVID forced them into their homes and gave them that as their only option may have already had modern decks, but haven't bothered to pull together pioneer decks yet. Um, We still have pioneer going from zero to 40% of modern's popularity on magic online in less than six months. And modern's had the better part of a decade to build its following and the collections on magic online. So your odds of having Tarmogoyce, if you were playing five years ago on magic online are much higher than you having Croxes or Uros, for instance, especially if you've been doing a lot of your standard drafting over on arena. Um, if your arena shifts, then your random accumulation of rares and mythics for newer cards is going to be a lot lower. So that it's entirely possible that the focus, uh, the refocusing of standard and draft play on arena uh, limits the availability of cards on Pi- uh, for Pioneer on Magic Online in comparison to Modern. Hmm. It's that's fair. All of a very fair point too. Um, hmm. So okay. I, I'm I'm willing to uh, I'm certainly willing to put our hypothesis on the shelf where it has always belonged with the we need more data tag attached to it and keep in mind that you know coming out of a situation where there are no paper magic tournaments back into lgs is operating the first wave of operation is very likely to be just going in and buying things to allow uh pent-up demand to represent itself and people will be buying board games and icoria product and whatever if that's going down say a two to six weeks from now, but they're not going to be running tournaments. So, you know, I don't really care what Pioneer or Modern look like. And if we're talking about specs, we should be talking about the cards that make the most sense for multi-format staple play, as we always say you should be. And probably with a, a bent towards casual cube and EDH, because that's the only stuff people are going to be able to play, and only really in the homes where folks have people to play with. Like, what I wouldn't give to have one of my brothers trapped with me right now. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be getting a yeah, lot of gaming I, done. Yeah, just as all of this was starting, my sister was considering coming over. She's uh, a couple hours away. Because we, you know, we have a, a large house and she's kind of stuck in a small apartment. And we're like, you could come kind of weather the storm here with us. Um, and I was like, oh, that would put three people in the house, which is enough to be able to play some of my other games, right? Like two people, it's hard to play a lot of these like board games and stuff. But three people, that's enough. But I didn't quite come together. And I'm imagining this is probably be, I'm a little jealous of some of my friends because there's three of them that live together in a house. And I'm like, oh, this would be a good time to be stuck in the house with your buddies and you just play games like all the time. Cause what else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Although there, there is that added tension of if one of your buddies is really slack with the mask and is just going out to check in on his girlfriend all the time. It's going well, ca- to cause some tensions. Yes, that's very true. Uh, I don't know how much that's getting to them. Although I don't think any of them particularly care because they're well, 
none of them listen, so I can say whatever I want about them. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that tension would exist. <laughs> uh, Ellie and I have started to we started playing Gloomhaven together uh, on Steam mm. last week. Uh, oh, on Steam, yeah. And the thing about that is Gloomhaven is extremely kibbly, finicky game in paper. Big giant box full of cardboard, super hard to organize. One of those games that's really well worth investing in, like one of those seventy, fifty to hundred dollar uh, wooden uh, game organizers to reorganize the box into a way that's going to be much more manageable, so that you're not loathing pulling it out and setting it up. Um, but I find that the game is significantly better. It loses a few things that don't translate uh, from the in-person experience to digital. But overall, much better experience in the sense that the game engine does a lot of the work for you. That's common of a lot of board games where you have the idea that it's um, it becomes considerably more streamlined when you play on a virtual platform. Uh, it's true of not only Gloomhaven, but like Through the Ages and Eclipse and a couple, you know, Scythe, although Scythe isn't really that bad in paper. And it's... Uh, it does expedite the game, but I find that it, the games lose a lot when they, you don't get to play them with the tangible pieces. Like part of the fun of the board game is the pieces and the stuff and the the touching of things. And when that when I move to a digital world, it's like I just rather play a video game. Like you know, I'd, rather than try and recreate this experience, I will just enjoy something else and leave the board games for the boards. Sure. For for me, I think it depends on the type of game. There are definitely certain games that I. I greatly prefer to play online. Uh, Magic's pretty interesting in the sense that it's enjoyable for different reasons um, and has different frustrations in digital versus paper, um, which is, a, I think, a, luck, a, a lucky stroke of happenstance for them um, because it has allowed them to fork and then fork again <laughs> how people are spending money on their brand. Yeah, well, it's certainly profitable for them, at least. I mean, Magic is better in... You know, it handles the transition from paper to digital better than other games do. Um, and I don't mean that like Moto and Arena have good interfaces. I mean that Magic in the real world is only cards, right? That's It's, it's just a set of paper cards. <clears throat> there are, you know, you have your additional accessories, but for the most part, it's just a deck of cards and sleeves. Whereas a game like Gloomhaven or some of these other board games, you get all sorts of cool stuff to touch and play with. Um, so I think you lose more going digital with a game like that, you know, Gloomhaven or what have you, or Terraforming Mars, and you do going digital with Magic, where you don't get to pull the cards in your hand anymore, but that's all you lost, type of, if that makes sense. Sure. All right, so back to this Jund top eight. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, Magic. <laughs> uh, modern. Uh, second place was a blue-white control list with Jaces and so forth. Third was another Jund build. Fourth was a Primeval Titan build that is using... Uh, anything sexy and new? I guess Four Dryad of the Elysian Grove being the most recent tech there, and Four Castle Garenbrig, um, which uh, I also got wrecked by earlier this week on Arena uh, by a Kinnon player, because Kinnon's ability has obviously an activated ability on a creature, and Garenbrig says for four, two of which must be green, you get six green. Spend this mana only to cast creature spells or activate abilities of creatures. And Kinnon's ability is a seven cost ability. So much earlier than you're expecting people to be activating Kinnon's, they can be activating it. Wow. It gets real nasty real fast. 
<laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, fifth place was a Niv-Mizzet Reborn list, which is, this is one of these decks where if we're talking about what you want to be looking at for a post-Luris world, if a deck pre-existed and doesn't use a companion and is competing against companions, it's probably going to be around post-companions. Um, the flexibility of the build for Niv-Mizzet leads me to believe that and for in the number of months that it has like been hanging tough uh, in modern leads me and pioneer leads me to believe that this deck isn't going anywhere. Um, I suspect that it's tricky to optimize to win on any given weekend, but there seems to be you know a, a minority uh, set of devotees to the deck that I think are going to carry it forward. Um, so I'd, I'd much rather be holding, for instance. You know, Niv Niv Mizzet Reborn foils than I would Dark Confidants right now. Because who knows if Dark Confidant goes right back to the garbage bin after Lyris disappears. Well, it's funny you say that because I have. uh, I sold a foil Niv Mizzet like today or yesterday. And the supply is pretty low. And I would completely agree with you that the, um, you know, if a deck is competing without companions right now, that it is going to be a very strong contender post companions. There is a bit of a metagame component to be considered there. Like, oh, if everyone is playing Lurus decks with these small permanents, maybe there's some particular strategy that does very well because of that. Uh, but then once everyone has to stop playing companions and goes back to play normal magic. It loses efficacy, but, uh, you know, looking at the deck list, I don't think that that's actually what's playing out. Um, so overall, yes, I think we're in a world where anything that's not a companion deck is definitely worth keeping an eye on for, for afterwards. It's almost like having a bit of a block tournament. It's like a, it's like a block season essentially that we're going through here like ignore all the Luris decks focus on the non-companion decks those are the ones that are going to be good in the fall there's also cards that are just so straight up good that you just need to worry about their reprint pattern more than anything else so for instance force of negations the sixth place deck here was a yorion 80 card jeskai control that uses saheeli rai and felidar guardian um, amongst other potential win conditions and jeskai control and blue-white control are just most of the cards in these decks. Your Sahilis or your Teferis, your Narsets, your Jaces, or J- and Cryptic Command and Force Negation are going to run a pretty similar pattern regardless of whether or not they get to run 80 cards and Yorion as a bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, seventh place was a Eldrazi Tron build. Uh, nothing too notable there. That look, That's another deck where it's just never really gone away. Uh, and then eighth place is a Uro Urza Gilded Goose Ice Fang Quaddle build. This is 80 cards because it's running Yorion, but this deck existed before as a 60 card build and is probably not gonna, going to go anywhere. Um, I would expect it to be a top three dominant deck once once if Lurus disappears. Yeah, if yeah, that's that's the other thing to keep in mind is are they going to ban Lurus or are they going to ban them all? Or, or are they just going to change the rule? Like, people seem to be talking about them in the sense of maybe just change how Companion works, as we touched on last week. I think the latest version of that that sounded about right to me was the Companion's not in your sideboard, it's just in your opening hand and replaces another card. So, like, you mm-hmm. you, you draw your you draw six plus your Companion um, so that Discard can interact with it and you're not actually up a card. Yes, which I think is was one of the suggestions that sounded 
one of the most fair ways to handle it. Yeah. And in which case, if, if you saw a crash on Lurus with new rules, I might assume that it wasn't good enough for modern, although I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a rogue deck put it to work. Um, but it might be good enough for Pioneer. Uh, yeah, it, it would. You'd have to leave that to the deck, the deck enthusiast. The card is only as good as it is, I think, because of you know the fact that you get to guarantee that you have it on turn three every time. Without the companion mechanic, I think he's fine, and maybe he's good enough. But I'm not like in love with him. Uh, I mean, Jun would still so. get to do things like bringing back Tarmogoyf's confidants and Croxes. <laughs> yeah on, on turn four right so the, the yeah the question is like if if but if it's getting thoughts he's on turn one who cares type of thing like is if if Luris is just a card that's in your deck or like is guaranteed to be in your opening hand but not a card that like if it's not the companion mechanic it's just guaranteed to be part of your opening seven is he is he good enough at that point in time i don't know i'm not saying he's not i'm just saying i don't know because it's so much easier to disrupt at that stage the consensus than... the consensus seems to be that it without the companion mechanic it's none of them are a big deal um yeah but i guess time will tell i, I don't really feel like keep in mind that this set is not even on the streets and paper yet and sometimes people just need to get the cards in hand with the rest of their collection and brew for an afternoon to find something new and broken i i will say that i think that even if they alter companion to function in that way like it's guaranteed to be part of your seven rather than what it is today i still think that's very that's bad for magic because now anyone who does decide to play with it or yorian or whoever now all of their hands are the same right like you've reduced the variance in what it's like to play the game because this card is always part of your opening hand you can guarantee it yes it can get thought seized but it's still always there it's reducing the, the variety of gameplay experiences which i think is very bad for magic and its antithesis of what magic is supposed to be and that's even more relevant when you're talking about a card like yorian who is an 80 card deck the whole point of trying to go as small as you can the whole the whole cost of his mechanic is that you have to play a bigger deck which makes you you have to put worse cards in it but if you can guarantee that you have yorian in your opening hand it kind of sidesteps all of that so just changing the mechanic doesn't seem like it's necessarily the goal either i i'm kind of hoping they just wipe them all out entirely but that's, a, that's tell, a, i suppose they've never had to ban an entire mechanic <laughs> the closest the closest thing is phyrexian mana the it's it's a real messed up situation. I, I mean, if you think about it, they banned... So the com, the companion mechanic is on 10 rares, right? Yep. If I go back... Oh, and I don't... It would take me a minute to do this. But if I went and looked at every single Phyrexian mana card, I would wager that basically every competitive Phyrexian mana card with the exception of dismember was eventually banned in like most of the relevant formats and even dismember you could argue was only relevant in standard um like a taxing probe and birthing pod were both gone like yeah there was like a six four with double green phyrexian that was never banned but like that card basically doesn't matter so if you compare the cards with phyrexian mana that mattered to companions who were a cycle 10 rares who were all supposed to matter it seems like it was pretty close right and like you could have forgiven them for having looked at this and being like well 
70% of these are a problem day one on release rather than do this piecemeal. Clearly, the community has reacted very vehemently to the mechanic in general. So we're just going to put this to bed and ban every card, the all 10 cards right off the bat. It's unprecedented, but frankly, like the last four years in Magic have been unprecedented, right? Or the last two years. That's it just... That's true, but ultimately, I, I can, we can only guess what they're going to do. But I feel like something has to happen. Like this, this level of dominance from Luris and more broadly for the mechanic is not going to be okay. Uh, they can't leave it as is. So, looking over at Pioneer Super Qualifier, this is from uh, May first tournament, uh, end of last week. Uh, Demir Inverter won, no companion. Just, uh, you know, good old Demir Inverter from a few months ago. People thought it was a meme. Then it was a very real thing. Then it was broken and something was going to get banned. And now uh, Thassa's Oracles look pretty safe to hold and or sell later. Because uh, there's so much more going on. Uh, second place it was a Boros uh, Aggro Burn deck with Luris. Third place was another Inverter build. Uh, fourth place is a Underworld Breach combo with Lotus Fields. Uh, that deck's been a, another example of a deck that was supposedly going to get banned, but never uh, put up stats to justify it. It's probably going to exist intact uh, post the Luris environment. Uh, they don't run any of them, right? Yeah, no. Uh, and then there's a blue-white, I guess kind of a Death and Taxes-ish build uh with some taxing effects the walking ballista heliod combo teferi's elspeth conquers death very strong card lately nykthos trying to nix in the land pile uh and they're running an 80 card build with yorion in fifth sixth place is uh hardened scales ozolith uh affinity uh i have high hopes for the ozolith long term Seventh place is Boros Burn on the back of Luris, and eighth was the Black-White Luris deck. Uh, lots of related cards have taken off as of late. Uh, we'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, let's see. Top Paper Movers, segment two. Segment two. Kicking things off. Cyclonic Rift out of Modern Masters 2017, going from 30 to 38, an EDH super staple, maybe the most important blue card in the format. Uh, very likely reprint candidate, I would think, for Commander Legends. If I was picking a top five cards, they might see a reason to reprint. Uh, this would be up there. Um, it adds a lot of EV to the box. People, every time you build a new blue deck, you probably need another copy of Cyclonic Rift. Um... There's a fledgling finance podcast for Magic that kicked off a couple weeks ago, and one of their points on their second <laughs> episode was uh, they were calling out, you know, is EDH really all that great for specking when people only buy one card at a time? Um, I used to think the same thing five years ago. Um, that's since long since been proven incorrect. The reality is that EDH players own a lot of decks, so they're, they don't need... The very specialized cards that only go in one of their builds, yes, they only buy one. But there's two two things that counter that point. One, stuff like Psychonic Rift, Smothering Tithe, Soul Ring, etc. It just goes in every deck of the appropriate color. So they end up adding owning four, five, six, seven copies um, over time. And the other point is that Commander is just massive. 
So it doesn't matter if people only buy one card, if a large majority of the playing population in the millions is playing that format. And the format doesn't rotate, so the demand for the good cards is consistent. Um, it also matters that the format is so large that even if they target the format with heavy reprints, and certainly the year 2020 is extremely laden with Commander reprints, it's the year of Commander after all, um, we're going to get a big, like a few hundred cards between Mystery Boosters and Commander Legends and that green Commander set in the summer and then all the stuff <clears throat> that will randomly pop up in the standard legal sets. Um not to mention the other ancillaries that are planned. There's still that jumpstart thing nobody's talking about and potentially a master set at some point, whether this year or next. So I don't even remember jumpstart. What the hell was jumpstart? Jumpstart's like the thing where you take two uh, small decks and shuffle them together and, and get a mixed theme. Okay. I think it's like two 20-card packs or something. And like one okay. one will be themed wizards, and the other one will be themed lizards. And now you're playing wizard lizards, and mm. yeah, so that's gonna have. Oh a- boy, I get to play my ninja robot deck. Ah, oh, sick! I love being thirteen. It's basically like Smash Up. <laughs> like Smash Up is a game we've owned for yeah. years and has been pretty good for people that are are like just kissing the outer tangents of trading card games. And if if you're if you're subscribed to R, reddit slash r slash funny it's right up your alley sure <laughs> so yeah smash up is all about like spy robots being a deck and you just, and it's the same kind of mechanic that they basically just lifted and transported to magic so there's that and all the other stuff but here's the thing edh is a massive format so even when you give it that much love you can't reprint everything and as a result you're going to see commander cards even in the period era of code of it selling out and going up all year long well yeah and the the idea of is it worth specking on edh cards if you only ever get to sell one uh find me an edh player how many edh players do you think own one soul ring or or you know or one cyclonic rift it's like if you're playing a blue deck you're putting you want to put a cyclonic rift in it for the most part and the only people who don't own multiple cyclonic rifts are people who don't want to fork out 30 bucks to copy for them uh but you know well, and- if people were able to have as many of these cards as they could they would own quite a few and modern or yeah if you if if you could own exactly as many as you needed for the decks you have built you most people would own more than one of a lot of these cards and modern masters 2017 it's three years ago it's 2020 now and cyclonic rifts were down like foil cyclonic rifts i was picking up copies between 10 and 14 dollars and now they're 30 plus so uh and i'm sold out i have none left to take advantage of the latest price bump. So, you know, I don't know what to tell you. That you definitely want to steer clear of the super narrow niche stuff in in EDH if you know, Elementals was a big thing because of Omnath last summer, but now it's kind of off people's radar. A lot of your elemental specs might get stuck in hand. So, f- certainly focus on the staples, but focusing on the staples is very reliable. All right, so taking another look at the next card on the list here, we got Anointed Procession. Um, speaking of EDH super staples that you're going to have no trouble selling, foils here going from 22 to 30. Uh, another card that could see a reprint this year, but I might give that a 15 to 20% chance. Um, otherwise, it's a EDH super staple that's draining out. Um, good in a variety of different builds, and I, w- I would say that Fading a reprint for every year this fades a reprint, add ten bucks to the foil price. 
I yeah, I'm I'm actually a little surprised to see this here, only because I sold a foil anointed procession today uh, or yesterday. And then when I went and checked up on the prices to list my next one, I saw that there were a couple left, not a lot, but there were a couple floating around the $20, $21 range. And I notified our Discord. I'm like, hey, just so you guys know if you wanted one, they're still on here. And I made it one of my picks for this week, although I gave you guys a third one since that one was, you know, you could argue that it doesn't really count. But I'm a little surprised to see it pop up here because I know they're still available at the time of recording for $21 or so, but only a couple. Yeah. Uh, Mishra's Bobble out of Iconic Masters, uh, non-foils going from 11 to 15. That's definitely on the back of all the Luris builds wanting them. Uh, the card was already an important card in, in modern. Uh, artifact recycling decks especially tend to want it. Uh, it's also been used in decks that want to uh, fill the graveyard with various uh, card types. Uh, anything like Death Shadow builds, Jun builds, I mean Death Shadow Jun builds, uh, your... Uh, any build that was running Tarmogoyf uh, have, has found reason to use the card. Iconic Masters was thought to be a uh, pretty crappy set at the time, but there's been some pretty solid rebounds from that set in recent months, and I'm curious to see what the EV looks like for a pack these days. I haven't taken a look. Uh, Mana Reflection and a Shadowmore single printing card, a uh, big thing in EDH, 4,000 decks reported uh, in the last couple 4, of years. 4,000. Uh, <laughs> or... I'm just amazed that Modern Reflection still hasn't seen a reprint. Yeah. That's that's a that was yeah, Shadowmore with no reprint. People have been waiting on that one for a long time. That could be in that green commander set this summer. Seems like it would be a very good choice to me. Uh thirty two to forty four, kind of card I want to be selling at this price point. Uh probably would be in a lot more decks if there was more copies available at a cheaper price. It's kind of thing like doubling season. Fits in a lot of places, but not everybody wants to spend $40, $50, $60, $70. Um, Chrome Mox out of EMA, uh, 60 to 90 This is on the back of Luris Legacy Play. It's also in 19,000 reported decks on EDH Rec. So you got a super uh, staple in EDH plus uh, every Luris Legacy deck, uh, at least considering uh, what their options are for cards that are cheap to bring back. Uh, Earthcraft is a reserved list card, underplayed in EDH, I would imagine. Single printing card, uh, doesn't have a Judge Foil promo or anything. At a Tempest, going from 55 to 90. That one feels like folks. There's been a, several cards discussed in our Discord over the last couple of weeks that smell to me like the market got narrow in terms of supply. So the, the market can't resupply some of these cards very easily because there's no, there's so much fewer. Uh, so much less buy list action overall. Um, only several major buy lists, uh, many major buy lists are shut down or by vir- virtue of there being no Magic Fest and no LGSs, very few cards circulating into the market. Um, and so also there's the shipping problems that are going on where USPS stuff is getting stuck in a black hole, taking a week or two extra to get delivered, which is turning off a lot of sellers and making them take their stores offline, which is narrowing the amount of supply in the marketplace. Also, you the whales are going to be the last to leave the market. So, you know, auctions for high-end graded stuff have been performing relatively well lately, um, not showing tremendous drop-off from pre-COVID pricing. Uh, dudes like my dad that have steady incomes, your engineers, your doctors, your lawyers, your computer programmers who are probably going to be secure all the way through the crisis, 
and are unlikely to get laid off, are you know have disposable income just as they always do, and are more than happy to target. And then you have you know people that might smell all of these factors coming together and think, you know what? There's only seven copies of Earthcraft lifted on TCG Player. Why don't I lift the bottom two and see if it pumps twenty bucks? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which it, 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 you can certainly tinker with the pricing data a little more easily now than you could because if there are people who have taken some of their inventory offline, it's and there isn't a venue of resupply existing, you can really suck the floor out of a card. And have no, you know, you're missing more inventory in the market and you're not having more come into the market. And suddenly what would keep the price closer to, you know, whatever, $20 suddenly makes it looks like it's up to 35. And this is going to be a chance to see kind of how the market handles that type of thing, because, hey, maybe all this kind of comes back and the price doesn't move because people are willing to pay 35 bucks for it. And it's like, well, I guess that card was underpriced. Yeah. Exactly. What's next? All right, so next on the list, we've got Agent of Treachery Foils going from 9 to 15. I'm going to talk about this more in a further segment, but let's leave it at this for now. It's in 5,500 EDH decks uh, so far in EDH Rec, and it just came out last summer. It's a big deal in Yorion builds and standard right now. It's a single printing, probably safe for a reprint for two or three years in foil, and it has no extended arts. Oh. Because hmm. those started in Eldraine. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I look forward to the discussion. Mystical Tutor, out of 6th edition, um, 13 to 24 for a nice jump there. Uh, It looks like the other versions have also gone, so that's going to include EMA. There was also an FTV version of this, FTV Exiled, I think. Um, I mean, it's in 43,000 EDH track decks. This is the number one blue card, I want to say. Or, or close to it. Well, number one might be Cyclonic Rift. This is very high uh, up the list. I will say that much. So uh, I guess the whole, the whole the whole lot of it has been gone after. This card seems like it is especially vulnerable to the lack of resupply and the price being higher because of that. Yeah, and EMA was, what, four if not five years ago now? And no, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty sure. Eternal Masters. I'm, I'm going, what is it? 2020? I'm going with 2018? 2016? Wow, was it really? Yeah, June 10th, 2016. So it's four years old. Man, I did not think EMA was that old. Holy shit. I thought that was like not last year, but the year prior. Yeah. They made so many of these premium sets. Oh, I cannot keep track of them. So next on the list here, we have Sylvan Library. This is the fifth edition version, in theory, going from 120 to 240. Suffice to say, you can ignore that number. Uh, Both of those numbers are completely unreal. But even the Eternal Masters copies in the $40 to $50 range are draining out of the market in current circumstances. So the market is probably missing some inventory right now, for sure. And once buy lists turn on, uh, some of these things are definitely going to see some trends of reversal uh, with prices shifting downward. But Sylvan Library is a big deal card in EDH as well. Uh, also gets played in some older formats and cubes and stuff. There's only 12 listings currently on TCG Player, and they ramp pretty hard from 40 to 65 You could probably do worse than snapping off a $40 copy or two. I could see that being a legitimate play. Now. Seems like it would hang on pretty well. There are some places where this could see reprint this year. 
but not a lot. And this is a tough card to reprint because it's a very high power level. Never going to yeah. see this in standard. Um, <laughs> never, never, never. And it's not... I guess Commander Legends is is the biggest risk point. It's, it's tough to put forty to fifty dollar green man, cards in that in that eight card in that eight card commander set. Yeah, especially when you want, I mean, you want it to do more than that, right? Like it's not just supposed to be here's three hundred dollars worth of magic cards for new, no. for thirty. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> So yeah, I, and I, I will. I, I every, I also every single one of those limited print run sets I do, where it's like, you know, I between like eight and twenty cards, and it's an exact. You know, these exact cards that you receive are before Secret Layer were unquestionably like worse than people wanted them to be. Like it was always like, oh, we're going to release this product. There's you know eight, twelve. 15 cards in it and it's these these specific cards and people would gesture wildly about what's going to be in it and then it'd be like oh out of the nine cards we were hoping for there was two and it included something you know some garbage like you know the the ftvs were a good example like look at you know the lands and armageddon or whatever and all those types of things and you kind of get an idea that they're never as grandiose as the public likes to imagine yeah so next on the list, we got Krom Ludovic's Opus out of Commander 2016. This is a single printing partner card. Um, some of the other partner cards have popped off pretty hard uh, recently. I think Timna and uh, what's the merfolk that draws cards for four? Tir- Tirna? No. Or is that? No, that was... Timna is the black-white T- one. Timna's... Yeah, and there's also uh shoot. I know who you're talking about. It's that Merfolk, the green blue Merfolk for two. Mm, anyway, that that name will float back to the top of my mind. Bottom line is people are probably poking around at other partners that might be relevant, uh, and finding that this one was in relatively short supply since it came out in 2016, which is again four years ago. Uh, next on the list, we got Winds of Change, fourth and fifth edition versions, going from roughly ten to say twenty or thirty dollars. Hard to say for sure. Interesting point here is that this is real. I mean, probably targeted to some extent, but real in the sense that Zyrus definitely wants to run this card, and Zyrus is a popular commander. Um, it's also been it's got multiple printings, but it's been in the sense that it was in fourth and fifth, but its original printings in Legends, and it's been out of print since fifth edition. So that's 20 years or so since this card got a reprint it's not reserved list um when's it change it basically you take everybody takes all the cards in their hand discards them and draws that many cards which means you get a whole bunch of snake tokens and whatever and and it disrupts uh uh folks plans and makes them rethink and whatever but i would think the legends copies near 20 bucks are pretty solid play because this sees a reasonable amount of EDH play. You might see a lot more with Zyrus around. And a Legends card that is suddenly in demand in Commander, even if only a few thousand people end up wanting it, is going to spike. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at this and wondering if I have any floating around. I don't think I knew. It's an uncommon. I don't think it's in any of my rare boxes. That's a bummer, which means this has I- been... All of my copies of this have been essentially lost to the ages. 
I have, I have a copy that I picked up as part of a larger collection maybe three years ago that I price like price marked at 15 like as my target sell uh, number, but I would think that 30 is probably a better number for the Legends version now. Uh, so next on this list, uh, I flagged... There, there could have been a bunch of Ikoria cards I could have put on this list and Commander 20 uh, cards uh, that I filtered out like we did last week, but I wanted to give one example just to explain why. Karuga the Macro Sage foils, in theory, going from 4 to $18. You want to ignore that, the pricing on Ikoria, stuff like this, completely until inventory actually drops on the market in North America because the only people paying those prices are the people that either have so much disposable income they don't care what they pay and they're just they're bored at home and they're filling in their you know ordering the cards to fill in their collection slots in the binder or they're not really thinking straight or they've convinced themselves that the Ikoria is going to be uh, undersold to such an extent that they should target the cards hard and early, which I think is correct in the long term, but wrong to be targeting now because there will still be a flood of singles. Um, less than there normally would be, but still a deluge. Um, and you definitely don't want to be targeting random companion foils, <laughs> given that foils are at that uh, doubled foil drop rate that started last year. Um, and no one knows if you're actually going to want that. And there are extended arts of these. Like, nah, 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 nah. Pack foils got hurt the, the most from all the, the, the booster fund project changes. So take take a pass on, on all of this stuff and, and hold your breath for four weeks and then relook at it. Can we just appreciate that it's called booster fund? Yeah. Project, project booster fund. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> just kind of, kind of silly. Don't even get me started. All right. So uh, we need to launch a program. It's called Project Booster Fund. <laughs> so, uh, the final card on the paper list: uh, Griff's Boon foils out of Shadows over Innistrad. Single printing card, dollar to eight dollars. This is on the back of Sram, Black, White, Luris, and Pioneer. Fairly silly foil to be going after. Uh, refer you back to our earlier conversation. When are you going to get to play? Black, White, Luris, and Pioneer. Three months? Six months? Is Luris still going to be legal in the format at that point? Who knows? You can just play the non-foil version of the deck. <laughs> uh, if Luris does not catch a ban in Pioneer, then this deck is very real, and these foils will probably be hold their value. But I don't see them being the kind of foil that people are going to be chasing at 20 to $30. I think it's the kind of thing where once it gets past a certain point, only that the, the connoisseurs of that deck are really going to want it, and the deck has to survive in the meta for it to matter. Yeah, I, I, I'm in, I'm right there with you. It's just that's not a that that question of when can you play Pioneer in paper should really says everything that it needs to. Like, just don't assume that that's coming anytime soon. I, I'm in a normal circumstance. I might have snapped off some two dollar foils or dollar fifty foils in Europe and thrown them in as part of a bigger order. But even that would have been loose in the best of times. So this is super loose to go chasing Griffspoon. Um, all right, so moving on to the Magic Online movers, which is much more uh, a reflection of what's happening in the churning metas that are 
warped around the companions. Got Deafening Clarion uh, out of Guilds of Ravnica going from 43 cents to 66. That's a 54% gain. That's on the back of Jeskai Fire's builds in standard. Um, Sacred Foundry out of Guilds of Ravnica, $1.40 to 221. 58% gain, also an important card. I think part of the the pump here on these uh, Ravnica block cards is that they're com- like just not being drafted at all. There's no... Any and all standard drafts are mostly taking place on Arena, and so much... So so little volume um, in terms of new cards. And it's important to remember that outside of Sealed and Draft, there is no injection of cardboard outside of Treasure Chests. So you have... Once people stop drafting a set, there's not that big of a faucet. Um, moving on, we got Gutter Bones out of uh, going from a dollar to dollar fifty, sixty-five percent gains. That's like Obosh Cat Oven standard action. That's an eighty-seven ticks deck that's doing extremely well. I think there was like two hundred and twenty-five O's or something recently with that deck. Just an insane amount of activity on the deck, and it's still only eighty-seven ticks. A ton, ton of real cheap cards in that deck. So it's Is, isn't that overwhelmingly like commons and uncommons. Yeah. So that it's a really powerful deck for a really good price. That if you're a good player and you know the the deck and the format well, and you can stomach all the repetition uh, and the ridiculous amount of clicking in the deck, then you can do some go to go to town and do some work. So not surprised to see some of the related cards taking a little bit of a pump. I, okay, I'm gonna hop in here. And we're going to take a very brief uh, time warp back to our previous segment because one card that didn't make the the list for top paper movers, um, and I'm, I'm not actually clear why, is Tainted Pact. Uh, are you aware of this card? I know of it. Right. So I noticed, I don't know why this showed up on my radar recently. I don't remember where I saw it, but Tainted Pact is a black instant from Odyssey. It's two mana. Exile the top card of your library. You may put that card into your hand unless it has the same name as another card exiled this way. Repeat this process until you put a card into your hand or you exile two cards with the same name, whichever comes first. I, to, to be perfectly honest, I'm not exactly sure where this is the demand for this is coming from. But well, the reason I'm jumping back to point this out is that this card was definitely like not expensive at all until recently. And I just, just sold a copy while we were talking for $45 for a lightly played one. This, is, so this isn't an, a, uh, a Thassa's Oracle card? You play one Oracle? I, I mean, I guess like in a legacy, ver- a legacy build, maybe it's um, a legacy... Thassa's Oracle deck. Like I, I am willing to accept all answers here because I don't have I don't have one. But I'm telling you that Tainted Pact is selling for forty five dollars for LP copies. So I strongly recommend you dig through your bulk and find them and put them. You know, try and get rid of them if you have them because I have I found three or four just flipping through. I'm like, oh yeah, I never would have paid any attention to these before. Well, the other thing is that in EDH, Tainted Pact is a reasonably significant card that's probably underplayed because you don't have any duplicate cards in your library. I guess, I guess it was five bucks as of like 2017. It's been floating around like four to $5. I guess it was 20 bucks as of last year. And it just like missed our radar. Cause I mean, review the text, remove the top card of your library from the game. You may put that card in your hand unless it has the same name as another card removed this way. In EDH, that condition will never matter. 
So you get to repeat the process until you put a card in your hand or remove two cards with the same name, whichever comes first. That will never happen. So Tainted Pack finds any card in your library, right? Repeat it until you... Yes, it is It is a tutor. It is a instant speed tutor and, for any card. And, and the downside and is that you exile everything you passed on the way to finding it. Yes. Yeah. So did you know that this was that this was this expensive prior to today? If you'd asked me, I would have guessed fifteen to twenty, like just off the top. Because I I could have sworn this was a bulk card, essentially, or like a couple dollars, if that. Um, but I get you know this is showing that as of February it was up to this price point, and I guess you and I just I just didn't know and we missed it at some point. I, I feel damn, like right, we well, talked about go. it a couple months ago, uh, and I think that it was. I, I want to say it was brought up in relation to Thassa's Oracle, but uh, I'm not 100% on that. I'm just looking up the relationship numbers. Uh, by the way, it was Thrasios Triton Hero that we were talking about earlier, the uh, uh, blue-green partner okay. that has spiked really super hard. Um, yep. Well, there you go, guys. I'm sorry if you already knew that, but it was news to me, and I wanted to point that out that it is uh, worth being aware of. All right, so back to the Magic Online stuff. Kaya's Wrath going from $0.42 cents to $0.73. Cents. Uh, Lotus Field from M20 going from almost 6 bucks to almost 12 so about 100% gain. That's on the back of the Underworld Breach decks making use of it. Uh, it could be that that's one of the decks that feels like it can go off fast enough to get past the grindy Luris value engine. Um, Calyx Destiny's Hand, the much maligned Planeswalker from Theros Beyond Death, going from $0.40 cents to $0.80 cents for 100% gain. Um, on the back of a uh, Calyx Super Friends deck with Yorion. So this is Narset Parter Avails, 4 Teferi Time Raveler, 4 Calyx Destiny's Hand, 4 Growth Spiral, 4 Shatter the Sky, 4 Omen of the Sea, 4 Oath of Kaya, 1 Treacherous Blessing, 4 Fires of Invention, 1 Whirlwind of Thought, 4 Elspeth Conquers Death, 4 Shark Typhoon, 2 Kiora Best the Sea God, and 36 Lands. I Calyx to me is in contention to be the most forgettable planeswalker ever, like or at least he was before this. Like it just felt like he got printed and he instantly disappeared and everyone forgot about him. Yeah. But I, I, it, it felt like he was on track to be to be that guy, but not not now. It would seem this this version of the Yorion Super Friends deck in standard has not put up super great results. As far as I can tell, uh, there's like a 5-0 list from May 4th, and everybody else doesn't seem to be doing very well with the list. So entirely possible that it will collapse, but if it became a standard in the deck, then you could see this, it's a mythic, so it could easily get up to four or five, six bucks, could even hit 10. Um, I just don't see the evidence for it yet, so I'm, I'm watching it, but largely ignoring it for the time being. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Agent of Treachery uh, moved in online as well because of standard play. Uh, $1.60 to 3 just over 3 so 100% gains. Um, there's Winota Yorion decks that are playing this. Winota kicked the crap out of me in draft the other day. Um, if a non-creature attacks, you get to look at the top 6 cards of your library and put a human into play. Agent of Treachery is a 7 casting cost human that steals permanent. So Winota looks at six, pulls out an agent of treachery, steals your best thing, and then attacks. Like, it's just nasty. Huh. 
<laughs> and then Yorion, Yorion gets cast out of the companion slot and resets all of that stuff. Real nasty. Jeez. And then they've got a tha- they've That's got a gross. Thass on the table, so they're gonna blink it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. Um, so finishing off with uh, the biggest winner of the week on Magic Online, Luca Coppercoat Outcast. We were wondering whether this was going to be a thing or not, and I flagged it when I saw some 5-0 lists pop up last week in our Discord um, as a Magic Online play that could make a move, and indeed it did, uh, from $5 to $14, uh, 187% gains, good time to be selling. Anytime you see a pump like this, you don't hold on and wait for 20 or 30, you just take the money and run on Magic Online. Uh, so what is the... What is the the deck make that's making use of this doing it's with them? It's Yorion using it to do a bunch of busted stuff because I think the Luca thing is that you exile, da, 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 put a creature card uh, onto the battlefield, and the rest on the bottom of your library, and then you can um, use Yorion and other flicker effects to like bring stuff in and out. So it's with Winota brings that agent of treachery in. Uh, he can also search it up and put it into play. So he's like a, hmm. a backup to the Winota to find the agent. Okay. All right. I was curious because I remember I thought this seemed pretty interesting and, and Dan Fournier did not agree, um, but it doesn't sound like he's doing quite what I thought he might be good at. So so the, so the deck is two Spectral that. Sailor, four Charming Prince, which of course can flicker stuff, uh, two, three Fibblethip the Lost, which draws a card and uh, can... Uh, flicker things and if it if fibblethip comes in uh to play or was cast if it entered from your library or was cast from your library you draw two cards instead uh bone crusher giants legion war bosses and elite guard mages all have uh comes into play abilities or just general utility two thassa deep dwelling four winota joiner forces which is another uh, magic online card i got my eye on uh four agent of treachery and three luca okay Hmm. So the high end, the high end is stealing people's shit with Agent of Treasury. Uh, yeah, sounds and, fun. And that version's not a uh, a Yorion build, in fact. Uh, although I would suspect that you can you can build it for Yorion. <laughs> you you could just make it. yeah. That's the deal with uh, with these things. All right, so move with the companions. Uh, We want to talk about Companion and Vintage as our topic of the week before diving into our cards to watch. You had some thoughts on this. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this popped up on Twitter and I found it very fascinating. And admittedly, it's not finance, directly finance related, but it's, it's I think it's worth considering and does give us some jumping off points for, you know, sort of a thought experiment. But, you know, we can kind of look at this and say Companion is across constructed magic is a problem right like we can all agree on that and we could say okay uh let's say you know wizards has answers in constructed formats they can ban the cards um they can also when you look at vintage they can they they can restrict cards that's kind that's kind of their dial when they're um controlling for cards and vintages they restrict them um the power nine is restricted uh Bazaar and Workshop are notably not restricted. Lots of other cards are restricted. The only cards that are banned in Vintage are Dexterity and Anti-Cards. So cards that require you to physically manipulate 
a card in order to achieve some goal, which is Chaos Orb and uh, one other card. And anti-cards, the gambling cards. But nothing else is banned in Vintage. But if you, you know, as we mentioned in segment one, the uh, top, the, what was it? Eight out of eight vintage decks all had uh, companions. And I think they were all Luris. So, and there was a bit of a kerfluffle on Twitter earlier this week where an individual said, you know, someone said, these are really a problem. Like Luris is ruining vintage and I'm concerned. And somebody else jumped into the fray with uh, a very strong, very wrong opinion and got promptly told they were wrong. Um, because in the, you know, they, because it's having a dramatic impact on the format. And the question becomes, well, what do they do? Can wizards ban cards in vintage that aren't, can they ban cards in vintage, right? Like this never happened. That has actually just never happened in the history of magic. So, and it's like, if soul rings legal and special recall black Lotus, like all of these are legal cards, but Luris is the problem. Luris is what's going to get banned. And it's just very odd because it, you, it, it, they sort of have worked their way into this corner where I'm not exactly sure what the solution is. Cause it's quite a precedent if they ban Luris. I have no idea if they're going to ban it, but <sighs> okay. So as you said, Wizards is not of a mind to ban anything in Vintage. It's not a format they even care about protecting or maintaining. I think that whether or not something needs to be banned there, the community will self-regulate anyway. If something becomes such a problem and Wizards won't ban it, that people just don't even want to show up at Vintage Tournaments because it's so boring, then that community will just say, hey, first of all, a lot of those tournaments don't happen at Magic Fest, right? Vintage Tournaments are largely private affairs in communities that have high enough, like good enough demographics to support a bunch of people owning $100,000 decks. Um, you know, 15 or $10,000, $100,000 decks. And as a result, they will self-regulate the if you're running a 300-person vintage tournament that happens twice a year or something, you're going to just say, hey, will you guys show up if Lura, if we shadow ban Luris? And if people overwhelmingly respond in the positive, then that's what will happen. So I'm not overall worried about the health of vintage. As we saw, vintage is a tiny component of what happens even on Magic Online, which is a system which is going to get retired. Arena is probably not going to prioritize launching any kind of vintage clone for years uh, for all the reasons that we've uh, used to explain why the older the format, the less interested Wizards is in dealing with it. Um, so it is kind of incredible that companions are so fundamentally busted that they've had this big of an impact all the way back to vintage. It's crazy that, you know, uh, MTG Finance blowhards are getting blown out on Twitter uh, in arguments about whether or not Lotus or Luris is more busted. Not the kind of argument you tend to be expecting to have uh, after a recent standard set release. So it's all very interesting in terms of it being a case study. But overall, I'm much more concerned with how the hows, where's, when's, and why's of how they end up handling companion in the formats that matter much more to us on a day-to-day -day basis. 
your pioneers, your, your pioneers, your standards, your moderns, and your EDHs. However, one interesting question is, you know, does it does it matter financially for vintage? Uh, is it likely to affect the prices of cards if the format stays bad for a long time? I think you and I are both both on the same page that the answer is no. Most of the activity in that sphere is collector related, investment related. Um, people certainly there is certainly a movement of like crack the graded card case and put up a video of it and then head to your old school tournament and raw dog your cards to be a badass. But those are, that those people are in the extreme minority. I I. I, yes, the, the how Wizards chooses to handle Companion in all of the other formats is considerably more relevant, but we we understand the tools they have available to them, right? Like, we know that if the push comes to shove, they can just ban all of them, and that's fine. They have that tool. It's not that big of a deal for them to pull that trigger, whether it's one or three or all of them, whatever. I, I, what I find interesting is they have a, a scenario where they do not have that tool available to them, essentially. I mean, technically they do, but it would be... Uh, a cons- it, it would s- say so much about the card power level and really about what's going on at Wizards. Like, uh, hey, you guys, it's been 26 years and we haven't had to ban a card for its power level and vintage, but you made the set where it was a problem. You made the set where there were cards that were so good we had to get rid of them in vintage because they were screwing the format up. Uh, Worse than Bazaar Baghdad and worse than Mishra's Workshop. Now, I don't know if Wizards are going to do it. I don't really have a, a feel for that. I just think it's a fascinating point and it also kind of opens the idea of like what and i agree with it it's it's unlikely to impact you know reserve list prices um i guess if they chose to completely leave it alone it would it could have a small drag effect if vintage for if vintage events kind of die out because people aren't interested anymore but like it would be so minimal i don't think it'd be a big deal at all um so much of that stuff gets collected for well collective in purposes right um so i don't think that's going to happen but i find the the issue the problem to be a fascinating one i mean if lura survives and gets played in two or three formats then i'm certainly all about the extended arts and foil extended arts yeah but no one ever needs more than one. And unlike EDH, where you get to sell five Cyclonic Rifts to one guy, no one's going to buy more than one Lurus. That's, that's, so, that's like, a solid yes, point. the extender of foils could be okay. Yeah, that's a solid point. Um, I, I, do, I, I am curious whether it's actually a three of in the main deck, two or three of in the main deck of a Pioneer deck, but I'm going to operate on the assumption that the answer is no and be, be ready to pull triggers on other things. Uh, seems like the more profitable avenue of of research. the the stuff The stuff yeah. that bounces back when Luris disappears is what I'm most interested in right now. Uh, yes, I would agree with you on that front. Um, so I guess I I don't. <laughs> we we started this topic of conversation. I don't. Yeah, I just I don't really know exactly where else to go with it, but I just thought it was so fascinating that they have this problem. 
yeah, it's it's not very often that you have cards providing dramatic impact in vintage. I mean, we just had Oko, which is which is also a vintage playable card. Um, yeah, but no one's calling for Oko to be banned in vintage at this point. No, no, and you and it's it's a different type of problem because you can look at Workshop or Bazaar Baghdad and say, okay, you, maybe you think they're a problem, maybe you don't. Um, I don't think anyone thinks Bazaar is, but Workshop possibly, and. If you really decide that Workshop is too good, Workshop is still basically only one deck, right? The deck could be too good, but it's still only one deck. And this is what we talked about earlier with regards to like Cobblade is it's the deck might be too prevalent, but it's only a deck and the other decks in the format are something else. But, and you can restrict Workshop to make those decks significantly worse. And, you know, which is you know not the same as banning it, but, you know, really takes a lot of the wind out of its sails. But Luris, again, just shows up in a bunch of different strategies um, so now it's which flavor lures are you playing? And there's different flavors, but you're all still playing the same card. And at the same time, it also cuts certain strategies out of the format entirely because who's going to play a deck like Oath of Druid or who's going to put Gristlebrand in their deck or Emrakul in their deck uh, at the cost of losing Lurus? And the answer is like nobody. So it has a very um, undesirable warping effect in the format uh, in a way that like an overpower... A, card that should be you could consider should be constructed like workshop doesn't have that safety valve um because not only can you not ban it restricting it obviously does nothing because you're only playing one anyways let's put it this way in the top 50 cards on magic online and vintage only three are creatures at number 20 you have snapcaster mage pretty good to snap back uh ancestral recall 23 you have luris and at 33 you have lavinia azorius renegade um so <laughs> that's a lot of penetration for Luris in a very short period of time. And it's at 25th most played card in the format with only as you as you noted a single copy, but 43% of decks are running it. Crazy. All right. So moving right along, uh, final two segments, cards to watch in both Magic Online and Paper. Uh, my flagged card for Magic Online that I'm keeping an eye on is Winota, Joiner of Forces. Uh, four of in some hot standard builds. Feels like it might be in the same position as Luka or might go nowhere or tank further. Um, you don't want to be jumping in on it speculatively. You want to be watching for the uptick uh, if you're watching thinking about a card like this, don't run out and buy 20 copies. Keep your eye on the card. Keep your eye on the results. And if Winota seems to be putting up good numbers in standard over a couple of day period, you're going to see movement on the card and you'll get the signal to move in. And then you're looking to ride it up, you know, one, two, three, four tickets and then grab your exit as people should be doing that with Luca. Yeah. Yeah. I, the card's quite powerful. Um, not too surprised to see it performing i didn't know if it would or not but i'm not surprised that it is uh, and i agree with you that you don't need to be the first guy to buy you can see you know you can wait for it to move five or ten percent and see the see what's happening and then make your jump on that especially with that moto where the margins um are so much tighter into or that it's so much easier to move quickly and get in and get it out it's not like paper um so i, I like the idea here for sure it's also like a card to keep an eye on when, if, when Paper Magic returns, because it could end up real cheap this summer in the absence of Paper Magic, and then end up doing a lot of damage in the fall if it gets the right set of cards in the next couple sets. 
Yes, that's for sure. This card could be legitimate in paper come next February. So, like, when Agent of Treachery rotates in the fall, this Winota loses the coolest thing you can do with it at the top end, like the coolest human you can drop, since humans tend to be pretty cheap. So the question is, does it get some kind of replacement human that's equally interesting? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's you can't bank on that, nope. right? But we can, you know, you can see what happens and look for opportunities. Yeah, it, it's unlikely to make my paper list anytime soon. But Magic Online's different, different animal, moving a lot faster. All right, so on over to paper. Uh, I flagged three foils back on my old game here. Um, the market is the biggest problem with the mar- selling right now is not that people aren't buying cards; it's that shipping is not functional. Um, the the most important thing I can say in this segment is think twice before you ship and certainly think twice before you ship plain white envelope. I've had to refund hundreds of dollars in eBay transactions this month on the honor system that eventually my card packages will probably show up at people's doorsteps. But for now, they're one, two, three weeks late. The people don't want to wait. Can't really blame them. Give them their money back. eBay's not helpful in the slightest because they've taken off... Uh, all of their phone support offline completely. So you're just out in no man's land handling your own business and hoping that you don't get too many negative transaction reviews. And as a result, and, and as a result, track packages should be the norm. That means you're only going to sell higher end items. They are rel- selling relatively well, but I'm getting reports from our members that even track packages are going into a black hole where they just stop somewhere in the postal system and don't get anywhere probably because uh, a facility with a case or two of COVID is going to get shut down and then the mail is just going to circulate because the people that deliver it in that neighborhood are just not present so the mail just sits in a room somewhere or bounces around waiting for that place to come back online We've also probably got border traps going on where uh, stuff outbound or inbound from Canada and the U.S. is probably under quarantine for a week. So that's adding a week at each border stop, and it could be on both sides of the border. So a week outbound, a week inbound. Nobody really knows for sure because none of those, neither Canada Post nor USPS are communicating super effectively on this topic. So keep all of that in mind. But assuming the world doesn't collapse completely under its own weight, uh, Sunbaked Canyon Foils look pretty good. Uh, Revisiting some of these Modern Horizons specs from last summer that make more sense now than they did then. $30, uh, assuming magic paper magic returns. This is the huge caveat over top of everything this spring. But Sunbaked Canyon foils at 30. I don't see where the resupply comes from. So 30 to 50 inside a year. Top 25 modern land. It's in 3500 EDH rec decks. Very solid profile. Yeah, that's a card that, you know, that's a a relatively modest gain overall, um, which I like that, you know, you're not that we don't expect it's gonna be like an $80 card. It's a very solid foil does well in modern is popular enough in EDH uh, and with no copies anywhere conceivable, it will it will climb to that 50, you know, 45, $50 target. For sure. Offer somebody with a social media posting of these like 25 bucks, you probably get a yes right now. And then if TCG markets at 50 in a year, you're, you sell them to somebody for 42 or something. Yeah. Yep. 
I'm straightforward and I think uh, quite reasonable. All right. So you, you flagged one of the hot movers this week as something that can keep going. Yeah, I had well, I had this picked before, so it's <laughs> I basically have marked down the prices that showed up in in the segment one as I I was looking at it and I'm like, okay, these are about twenty to twenty two dollars. I think that's a good price. You can uh, anointed procession, by the way, um, the foils you can get in at twenty twenty two. Probably shoot to get out between thirty and thirty five, ideally thirty five, which is again also a, a more modest gain, only about sixty percent, but it would work real well if you can get in and then out. Of course, it showed up at twenty two to thirty in the top paper mover so kind of weird but they are out there at the time of recording um it's in 19,000 EDA track decks it's part you know the token strategy which is very popular uh the supply is quite short on this I mean we're talking like maybe I think there were like 15 copies total or something like that um there's not a lot of them out there and that doesn't you know that includes copies that are already 30 bucks so if you can snag these at 22 bucks I think you're going to be very happy yep makes sense to me uh some reprint risk here, but unique uh, effect in the color that all token strategies want, as you said. So uh, for as long as it fades a reprint, this is probably looking pretty good. Uh, Castle Garenbrig foils out of, uh, I'm talking about the extended art foils can be had as low as $20 right now. And that definitely seems wrong to me, mid to long term. Call it 20 to 32 for a 60% gain. It's already in 5,000 EDH rec decks. It's a four of in Modern Titan. It's a two of in Pioneer Mono Green. See some standard play. Uh, it's going to be in cubes and what have you. It has combos with Kinnon. This card, very, very strong looking in the long term. Oh, yeah. I mean, the castles all uh, definitely really proved themselves. And Garen Brig is no different. Clearly a a solid EDH card, uh, 5,000X already after, what, about a year? Oh, my God. I can't even keep track of time anymore. Throne of Drain was this past fall, yeah, right, 2019? six months ago. Yeah, okay. So 5,000 in six months is pretty solid for sure. Um, definitely some people come to the table with that. Like you pointed out, it's seen playing competitive decks in two formats. Uh, and, you know, come... 2021 the formats are going to look a little bit different there's going to be other cards out there but someone's still going to be playing forest they're still going to be playing creatures castle garenberg is still going to be useful so even if it's not these exact strategies down the road it will be strategies that want a card like garenberg yeah exactly uh all right what's your next pick um so i just went shooting fish in a barrel this week uh next up is fumigate the white wrath that gains the life for every creature you killed and that you know it's a five mana sorcery five mana wrath which is wasn't you know it's not the greatest in constructed magic but if you're playing can you know edh and there's a table of four people your fumigates can easily gain you you know eight eighty eight hundred life uh depending on what the table looks like and right now you can get foils for two dollars for fumigate it is in 16,000 decks. It is the 14th most popular white card in the format. Uh, there's only about 35 people on TCG selling it right now. Nobody really has more than a play set. Most people have one, maybe two, but I don't think I saw anyone with more than four. Um, and it's not a it's not a loud card. Like when you think about EDH and some of the iconic cards, there's a lot of stuff that might come to mind, but nobody really talks about Fumigate. But clearly it's a very popular card. So the fact that it's 
you know, you've got a, a pretty tempting price here for these foils at two bucks. It's getting low on supply, very popular. Um, you know, is it reprintable? Sure. Right. Like all, you know, any of these EDH cards are reprintable, not denying that. But, you know, so long as it fades a foil reprint, I think you've got uh, some good choices here. It's it's going to be a longer ter term hold. Uh, I don't think you're going to be turning this around come July. Oh, wait, hold on. What month are we in? We're in May. You're not going to be turning this around come October. But I think that like next year, you could look to get out on these and you can sell them one or two at a time for five or six bucks, or you can ship them off to a buy list at, you know, maybe $4, uh, maybe even five in store credit after you paid two and you'll be quite happy. Yeah, this is, this is a nice like add on to another order kind of thing that is likely to work out in the mid to long term. It's not, it's not a spike driven purchase at all. You can buy one or two of these for your own decks comfortably at some point in the future in standard this is probably one of the wraths most likely to catch a reprint in standard i would think is just it's about the right power level um but not a huge priority reprint by any means yeah i mean yeah could it be reprinted in standard absolutely but you know, i feel like that's true like yes that's true but i don't know how to make a decision based on that because a lot of the stuff we talk about is reprintable and standard if they want to so like maybe now card card like, kingdoms uh buy list offers are significantly worse in this COVID situation obviously uh, as one would expect and they're not currently buying foil fumigates but they are buying pre-release foil fumigates and they're offering 286 in credit that leads me to believe that you're probably right that this is a four to five dollar buy list out when the time is when times are a little less tough okay nifty all right, um, so you're not the only one picking a card on the rise and guessing it might go even further. Pretty similar uh, to the Anointed Procession pick, Agent of Treachery foils are drained so hard right now that them going from, say, 20 to 30 would not surprise me. Normally, you don't want to be chasing these at 20 when you could have got them at 6 or whatever they were last summer, um, or even less, but... I think 20 to 30 is probably likely to happen. So I wouldn't be scared to pick up one or two copies for personal use at that price. It's still technically in print. So there's no way it's getting a reprint in foil anytime soon. It's rotating in the fall. So there's no motivation for wizards to be touching this card for years. And it's the kind of thing that they will probably put into a commander deck in a year or two as a non-foil. I'm still kind of holding my breath waiting for Wizards to start adding random foils to those decks to juice sales, which would be very effective, um, and wouldn't put it past them to, for that to happen within that couple of years, which will certainly change the landscape for EDH foils. But at present, plenty of EDH foils get three, four, five, six years before they ever see a reprint. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, at least that long. And it, it seems like yeah, I, I would agree with you completely there. Uh, that the, essentially the list of cards that need to be reprinted almost seems like it's growing faster than the the rate at which they are reprinting the cards. You know, if this was solely on the back of its strength and standard, I would be a little wary. But it's not. It's doing very well in these um, in in commander. Uh, and it's going to be popular there. So you like have the additional bump from standard and people might want copies for that, but really you're, you're getting your demand from commander and you can wait 
Um, and a jump from 20 to 30 doesn't seem unreasonable at all. That's that's an easy an easy shift to make. Yeah, and the thing is, Agent Treachery is a shit show in Standard right now. There's no way they're going to... This is the kind of card that just probably got shadow banned for Standard play from here to eternity, which means it's got to catch a foil reprint in some future Commander Legends type set, and that could be three, four, five, six, seven, ten years from now. Who knows? These foils could end up real expensive. I would guess on a two-year hold, you're probably going to double your money pretty easily. Uh, yeah, I think that's a reasonable, uh, a pretty fair way to look at it. Yep. All right, your final pick. Uh, so I went a different direction. I know you probably winced when you saw my numbers, but I don't really care. This is uh, read the bones foils. This was in both. This is in a bunch of sets, but Origins specifically it was and in both. Theros being the notable foil. Yeah. Things. Exactly. Theros and Origins being the foil printings. Um, you can grab Read the Bones for about a dollar or so, maybe a little less if you're getting them for, if you're getting a couple at a time or uh, if you're able to dodge shipping somehow. Um, this is in 22,000 EDH rec decks. It's a top 10 black card. So it's extremely highly played in the format. And it's going to be, you know, if you could snag a bunch of these for a dollar, there's not that many of these floating around either. Um, and, you know, you're out here again is probably buy list because if you're getting them for a dollar, you don't really want to be putting them in the, putting these envelopes for four. That is pretty obnoxious. But, you know, if you can grab any number really, but, you know, I would shoot for like 10 to 20. You can probably, you know, if you can snag them at an average of a dollar, dollar twenty-five, and then buy them for between three and four dollars. Again, that worked out very well for you, relatively easy, and the demand is definitely there to move this. And it was just in a mystery booster, if I recall correctly, which means it's a lot less likely we'll see it again this year, especially as a foil. This was not even remotely on my radar, and I would never have guessed that it was that highly played. I would question whether part of the reporting on EDH Rec is because it is included in decks from both Commander 2014 and 2017 as a common, so multiple decks have it. So if people register those decks and build out from that point, they have the deck auto-included. Um, but none of that changes the fact that the foils are in low supply. They're just aren't that many. It's only a common foil. It's been in two sets in the last five years. It could easily this one could easily catch a reprint in standard, because um, it's just about that perfect power level for draft and doesn't upset the apple cart in any way in standard. Uh, Scry is an evergreen mechanic, so uh, we will see we will see this again sooner or later. And because of the new foil drop rates, whenever that happens, it probably destroys. Uh, the original pack foil prices because it's not the kind of this it's not of a sufficient power level um or a flagship card in any way where the original pack foil is likely to hold uh, a higher premium the art's not particularly fantastic or anything so i want to be in and out on these if i'm in at all um say within a two-year time period and I could easily see it catching another commander reprint in the meantime, but again, probably not a foil. It's that standard reprint I'd worry about. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. You know, you have to hope that it's not there. It, it is Scry, but I think Scry is evergreen now, so um, that is what it is, I suppose. Uh, but I, I, I would be willing to grab some of these myself, and I might do that. Actually, I'm going to go check these stores with my store credit and see if I can grab a, a handful. Yeah, I mean, at a dollar, given that buy list, even the repressed 
uh, card gain and buy list is currently like 86 cents credit. You're, there's very little risk at a dollar. Um, so there is that. And as a personal collection play, it seems totally fine. Um, with some upside to exit to buy list where it looks appropriate. Yeah. Um, so what's what's your favorite pick this week? Hmm. I think Agent of Treachery and Annoyed Procession are <clears throat> rock-solid cards. <clears throat> I worry that the market will backfill to push them back down and that they will take a while to get to our price points. Um, <clears throat> I think I think Castle Garenbrig extended our foils are probably the best rocket ship there it's overall less important than both agent and uh anointed procession but it's probably the most undervalued given that we're talking the extended art foil not the pack foil yeah i think that anointed processions at you know 20 to 22 are like guaranteed to get there but it feels a little like cheating because there's so few out there and it might be too late for the most part. So if I'm setting that one aside, then uh, Garenbrig does feel like it has the most, some very strong potential here um, on a slightly longer time frame. I think you'll do okay with Fumigate 3, the Bones too, but I think that Garenbrig could be, uh, could probably be one of your better, bigger gainers. Fumigate and Read the Bones might be the biggest percentage return. But the the nominal returns significantly less in the transact. It, you really want those to be a buy list play that you just throw into an order. As a, I, I hate having to resell a three dollar card. I don't really sell anything under ten dollars. So from that perspective, I'm only thinking about those two as buy list action. Um, yeah. And some of our listeners might be a little a little more nimble and willing to stuff envelopes for a four dollar mm-hmm. five dollar card. Uh, but I agree, I, I'm right there with you. I don't like to do that either. And the the only safe way to frame all of this is that everything is extra risky now. I mean that that goes without saying. Um, we don't know what magic's going to look like uh, a year from now, so maybe we'll uh, tackle that on next week's episode. We can probably call that a wrap. Where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter, uh, as always, at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. You know, I have thought about changing my handle, but I feel like it's been so long now. I can't, I feel like I can't bring myself to do it. I, I'm not really sure, at least for me, that I, I, like, I obviously associate that with you, but I don't find it as, I don't find it. It doesn't strike me as a successful branding enter- enterprise. Um, your name, your name, yeah. definitely more sticky to me than than your Twitter handle. It wasn't meant to be a branding thing. Uh, this I made that Twitter handle like six years ago or something, and I think the term "bumpin" was more in the 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 vernacular, the slang than it is today. <laughs> All right, boomer. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, I don't hate it, but I have thought about it. The real problem is I don't know what else I would switch well, that, it to. That, and I'm, that was my next question. Mm-hmm. I was curious whether you had something in mind. Mm-mm, I don't. I don't at all. And I, I've idly considered a couple things, but nothing really quite feels right. And other some of the stuff that I like feels like it would run into the same trap of becoming stale after a couple of years or, or even a couple months, frankly. Um, 
So I don't know. I don't know. I've thought about it. If you have uh, really good ideas, I suppose I would hear. So you're them. not going to go with magic. T- and this goes to you're everyone. You're not going to go with magic everyone. Tiger King. <laughs> I have not watched that, uh, nor will I. But yeah, uh, you, you just dumped a branding exercise on me. That's going to keep me up all night. Thanks for thanks for that. Good. Um, good. You can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com. I also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com pro trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I also like to remind folks that if you are trying to sell something and having trouble, happy to echo that for you on Twitter to four or 5,000 people. And uh, we're also still offering a program where we'll uh, provide a 5% discount on your sale. So say you were selling a $100 card and we helped you get the sale. We would give your, you could offer your buyer an extra five bucks off that we would cover uh, via direct PayPal payment uh, experiment. We are running just to help out. Uh, who's our sponsor, by the way? Well, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find also sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Which brings us to the end of episode 218, another informative one, I would like to think, and uh, I will see you again next week, James. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.